Let's pray before we jump in. Lord, thank you for this day. Thank you for your grace on Sarah's life and Mercy's life and all of our lives. God, for those who are here this morning, still experiencing Friday and waiting, I pray that you awaken hope in them, rekindle their confidence that even if your time is not our time, you are always faithful and you do not disappoint. Help us to hear what you want us to hear this morning and nothing else. Amen. I think some sermons, and for some preachers, all of their sermons, should come with some kind of advisory label. If you were here several years ago when Bishop Ed preached his sermon about circumcision, you will agree with me, that should have had an, an, a warning label that was posted online weeks in advance so we could all have known what we were about to hear. My, I, have a, I have a dear friend who invited one of his professors to speak at his church, and this professor had a reputation for being, as someone suggested in the first service, salty. And sure enough, during the, the professor's sermon at this conservative evangelical church, he said the following line, God is killing the church in America, and we GD well deserve it, except he didn't edit himself in the way that I just edited myself. And you can, on the recording, hear the gasp of the congregation, who is in no way worried about the judgment of God. They are very worried that that preacher had said that word in their hearing. So that sermon obviously should have had a label, and this sermon should have a label. And what I want the label to say, this is inelegant, is this is for us, but it's not for each of us. This is for us together, but it doesn't apply to each of us. I I remember years ago, a decade or so, I was pastoring in Oklahoma City. It was Advent season. I was talking about different figures in the story of Advent, in particular this Sunday, Mary, and the ways in which Advent is about interruption and the invasion of our life by the purposes of God. And that Mary is not praying for God to do anything. She's not seeking God's work in her life in this way. Suddenly an angel appears to her and says, you're going to have a child. That child is God. And that child is going to save the world. And I was making the point in my sermon that most of the grace of God is not grace we ask for. It's grace that shows up in our lives uninvited. But while I'm saying that, I realize that in the room with us is this woman whom I happen to know has been raped and is pregnant. And I hear myself saying that God has shown up in Mary's life uninvited and that this grace has invaded her life. And I realize there's no way she can hear that as gospel. She can't help but hear that invasion as violence, as a, a, a rupture in her humanity. And as far as I know, I've never again spoken anywhere without thinking about that, without thinking about the fact that whatever I'm saying is going to hit somebody the wrong way because of what they're experiencing, because of where they happen to be, what it sounds like I'm saying to them isn't at all what I intend, and maybe the opposite of what I intend. And I want to guard against that as much as I can, but at the end of the day, we don't know each other's stories well enough. We can't be careful enough to avoid all of that. So I'm saying right up front, as clearly as I know how, a lot of what I'm going to say today isn't going to apply to some of you. And some of what I'm saying may not apply to any of you. 
But I think it does apply to us as a community, that this is a season in which sanctuary as a community needs to hear about how we are to live with one another. So with all of that preface, let's read the epistle for the day. 1 Peter 2, 19-25. This is a difficult text, and it needs its own warning label, as you will see. It is a credit to you, Peter says, if being aware of God, you endure pain while suffering unjustly. Now notice how he just assumes you will suffer unjustly. And that there's suffering that's just, apparently, and then there's suffering that's unjust. And you will endure it. If you endure it, you will suffer it. If you endure it, aware of God, it somehow is good. Now, he is not saying that suffering is good. He's not saying that unjust suffering is good. He is saying that you can bear suffering in a way that is good. You can bear unjust suffering in a way that is good. If you endure when you are beaten for doing wrong, what credit is that? But if you endure when you, are, when you do right and suffer for that, you have God's approval. Now, I wish God's approval meant I wouldn't suffer for doing what is right. But Peter just seems to assume there will be times when you're doing exactly what you should be doing and the response you're going to get is abuse. And if you endure that in the right way, good. For to this you have been called. Because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you should follow in his steps. He committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. Precisely in those moments in which Christ is being abused, what comes out of his mouth is life and not death. When he was abused, he did not return abuse. When he suffered, he did not threaten. Now think about how remarkable it is. We know that He says to Pilate, I could call legions of angels to deliver me if I wanted. But at no point in any of Jesus' suffering, from the garden through Good Friday into Holy Saturday, at no point does he threaten those who are abusing him. In fact, the opposite. He blesses those who curse. His dying words are words of mercy and forgiveness. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And out of him, as he is being abused, comes life. Like the the rock that Moses strikes in the wilderness. Moses strikes the rock in anger, and yet water still comes forth. Christ is that rock. You strike him, life still comes forth. He did not threaten because, and this is the wisdom Peter has to give us, he entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. And this is critical. It's not that Jesus didn't care about justice. It's not that he didn't care about right and wrong or abuse and righting abuses. It's that he entrusted himself to the one who can do something about it. That as he's being abused, he's not ignoring that he's being abused. He is not calling evil good. He is accepting the evil done to him and then entrusting it to God. He's accepting what they're doing to him and instead of retaliating against them, he's reworking that suffering into a gift to God and trusting himself to God. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that free from sins we might live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. By his wounds you have been healed. By what he suffers, the way that he suffers it, it brings healing to you. 
You were going astray like sheep, but now you have returned to the shepherd and guardian of your souls. We are in the Easter season. This is the fourth Sunday of Easter. And Easter is, in spite of what the Hallmark card says, Easter is not joyful because someone somewhere beat death. We don't celebrate Easter because Jesus got out of life alive or figured a way around death and beating death at its own game. We celebrate Easter not just because of what happened, but who it happened to. That the one who has been raised from the dead is God with us. God having taken all of creation, including you and me, into his own identity so that what happens to him is true of us. Easter is good news, not because someone got out of death, but because God has defeated death for us and is now on the other side of death, working for us to make all wrongs right and to make all good possible. Easter is good news, it's joyful, because given that Jesus is resurrected, any good thing is possible. Because Jesus has been raised from the dead, we can live as lovingly as we dare without fear of how impractical it is or how irresponsible it is. Christians are people who so trust God's work for them, trusting their future to a God who is on the other side of death, that we can love even the people we know want to kill us. Now hear me, when Christians talk about loving their enemies, it's, it shouldn't be naive, it shouldn't be sentimentalistic, it shouldn't be, again, hallmarky. Our enemies are our enemies. They mean us harm. And whoever you think of when you think of your enemy, make no mistake, they intend harm to you. When Christ calls us to love them, he doesn't mean ignore the fact that they're a threat. They are a threat. He means their threat, however real it may be in their eyes and in your eyes, from God's perspective is meaningless. Because Christ has been raised from the dead. And if the God who creates everything out of nothing and raises the dead from the dead is on your side, what can they possibly do to you? Whatever they do, even if they kill you, he will resurrect you. What could they do to separate you from the love of God? They can do a lot, make no mistake. But there's nothing they can do to separate you from the love of God. And so Christians are people marked by the fact that they love their enemies. Not just their family, not just their friends, but the people that actively seek their harm. That's what distinguishes us as the people of God. And that's what makes the church the church. To live in a Christian community is to be called to live a life with other people who intentionally or not are going to harm you. We love to quote the Proverbs, the proverb, iron sharpens iron, without ever stopping to think about how iron sharpens iron. That's not a painless process. Iron sharpens iron because of conflict, because of edginess, being forced against edginess at just the right angle for just the right amount of time. And God, for whatever reason, chooses to do all of his work in time and with time. And what he does over and over again is put us in all of our edginess right up against somebody else in all of their edginess and holds us there. And sparks fly, inevitably. Sometimes romantically, most of the time, because we're, 
wanting to hurt each other in one way or another. There's a French philosopher who said, hell is other people. And I found that to be true over and over and over again in my life. But Christians say, no, purgatory, that's, that's what other people are. Other people are painful, but they're the kind of pain that shapes us into the image of God. That when other people are endured rightly, what comes is the holiness of God. What comes is sharpness. What comes is our character shaped into the character of Christ. But that takes time, and it uh, takes the willingness to let God do that work in us by holding us alongside other people. You think about Jesus' selection of his disciples. Those people would never have gathered together on their own. They were only together because they were there with Jesus. Otherwise, they wouldn't have been together. And you know you're in a church and not a club when you have been brought into a relationship with people you would have nothing to do with if you had a choice. Right? It's not a church unless there's somebody there with you that you are afraid to fall asleep with them nearby. If, if, otherwise, it's just a friendship. Right? But we're not here today because we all like each other or because we all see the world the same way or because we have deep affinities. with. We're here because Jesus brought us here. And our connection to him has drawn us into connection with one another. And most of our interaction, if it's truly going to be sanctifying interaction, is going to be conflicted. In one way or another, it's going to rub us. And what we have to do is submit to that process. And let him do that work. And let him allow this community to be a kind of pilot project of what he wants to do with all human communities. That, the church is not an alternative to the world. We don't come and gather as the church to get out of being in other relationships. We come here to learn how to be in those relationships. We come here to heal and to become healers for all of the relationships that we live in. And we need to be the kind of community here in Tulsa where people can say, I know that race and gender and class, all of these things divide us. And yet I know some people who've learned as painful and as difficult as it is, I know some people who are learning to live together in spite of all that. That's who we are. And we're not doing it because we want to. We're doing it because Jesus says, this is what you do. The road to God always leads me to the door of the person I think is least like God. And when I knock on that door, my enemy answers the door. I'm looking for God, and what he keeps doing is sending me to my neighbor, sending me to the stranger, sending me to my enemy, because it's there that I learn to see him as he is and not as I've made him to be. And it's there that I learn to be received by those who can be graceful to me, not because they're like me, not because I already belong to them, not because they share my blood or my skin color, but because they are loved, and out of them comes the love of God for me. That's who the people of God are. So not hell, but purgatory. So to live to that end, to live in that way together, we have to learn to live over the long haul with one another while withholding judgment. It is astonishing how much Scripture talks about how we are not to judge one another. You remember Jesus says, do not judge, which is only quoted by two groups of people as far as I know. The people who've done something so egregious, so obviously wrong, 
that their only defense is to say, don't judge me. Or the people who quote it to say Jesus didn't mean it. Those are the only two people I know that quote that verse. The people who are obviously in the wrong and don't want to admit it. And the people who just don't think Jesus meant what he said. They apparently think when Jesus said do not judge, what he really meant was unless it's you, you go ahead and judge. I'm telling those other people not to judge. Because clearly they shouldn't be judging, but you, you're trustworthy. You judge, you go ahead. But no, he said it, he meant it. Don't judge because the way you judge is the way you will be judged. Because there's something about the way you posture yourself in relation to those who wrong you that determines how life happens to you. When you posture yourself in judgment against those who wrong you, what actually happens is you take on that shape. It hit me a few months ago, maybe a couple years now, I don't, uh, some time ago, that there are a few people in my life that absolutely drive me mad. And I started to realize, I don't know why those people do, because there are plenty of people in my life that should, that don't. I mean, there are, I know a lot of people who should keep me up at night because of how crazy they are and how rude they are and how mean they are to me and how stupid they act sometimes. But most of those people, overwhelmingly, 99% of those people can be mean and stupid and rude, and I don't care. It doesn't, it doesn't bother me at all. I might smile, I might roll my eyes, but I never notice it. And then there are those four, five, six, seven, eight, nine people that when they do something like that, I lose my mind, right? I kick my dog, not really, but you know, or some such thing that I couldn't repeat here without giving you a, a label for the sermon. I, I, I act unrighteously. I, act, I lose my sanctification. But why? Why do those people bother me? They're not the stupidest people in my life. They're not the meanest people in my life. They're not the people who've caused me the greatest harm. And I, I realized the reason those people bother me is that there's something in what they're doing to me that awakens some awareness of myself that I don't like. The reason I'm staying up at night is not about them, it's about me. And something about what they call out of me makes me uncomfortable with myself. And so, Jesus' warning about judgment is to remind us, the way you posture yourself toward other people, that's about you. That's about you. So be careful how you do that. Paul tells the Corinthians, I don't care if you judge me. I don't even judge myself. There is one who judges me, and he hasn't said anything yet. I love that. He says, you know what? You have your opinion of me. It doesn't matter that much. I have an opinion of myself. That matters even less. There's one person who has an opinion about me that matters, and he hasn't shared it yet, and so we wait. All of us. You have to wait, and I have to wait to hear the judgment of Christ. He tells the Romans, if you judge another, you condemn yourself. If you judge another, you condemn yourself. Because what your judgment of them says is what you care about. The sins we judge in others are the sins we care about, not the sins that God cares about. And so Paul warns the Romans to stay away from it, strikingly at the very end of the passage that gets quoted all the time as a form of judgment. But that's neither here nor there today. In the Philokalia, which is a collection of of church father sayings, there's this line that I, I think of often. 
one of the saints says, do not trust even one thought that would judge your neighbor. Do not trust even one thought that would judge your neighbor. And what's, what's present in that saying is this assumption that some of the thoughts that come to us don't come from our own hearts. They come from outside of us. That sometimes it's the devil talking to you, not the Lord. Now, I know some of us have been raised in charismatic circles. who We're firmly convinced that any thought we have, it's God speaking to us. But sometimes it isn't God. Sometimes that's some other voice. And if it's judging another person, if it's making an accusation about another person, chances are it's the accuser who's doing the talking. And so we're told to not trust it. We hear it. We can't help but hear it. Just don't trust it. Let it pass right through you. So here's the key, and I'm almost to what I want to say this morning. All of this is introduction. Now, some of you are judging me. This is a test. The key is not to be blind to injustice and wrong. Scripture, the Christian tradition, does not call us to ignore when we are mistreated. We are not called to turn a blind eye to it. We're called to see it. But we're called to see more than the wrong. Because we're called to see the wrong that happens to us and the one who's doing the wrong to us in the light of Easter, in the light of God raising Jesus from the dead. And that means we not only see their wrong to us, we see ourselves being wronged and we see the entire scope of what God's doing in our lives at the same time. How many of you know those people who say, I don't judge, I'm a fruit inspector? Do you know any of those people? Those are my least favorite people in the world. Like, and I have a lot of least favorite people, but at the bottom of that list are those people. Because, you know, no, I'm not judging. I'm just, I'm just inspecting fruit. But really, we take Jesus' call to look at the fruit. And what we think is, if we see a rotten apple, we know it's a rotten apple. And we have every right to say so. But we're not called just to see apples. To see in light of the gospel is to see not only that there is a rotten apple, but to see the tree and then to ask, what kind of soil has this tree been planted in? What's the season right now? What's the weather been like? Has someone come along and poisoned this tree? What kind of fruit did this tree have last year? How could I heal this tree so that next year its fruit would be different? We don't just see the apple. We see the tree and the soil and the season and the forest. Judging fruit isn't about noticing one thing someone said once. It's about seeing the scope of what God's doing in their life, including the way in which his grace is going to save them from themselves. That's fruit inspection. So by all means, inspect fruit. Just see the whole forest, not the one apple. And so, introduction finished. Here's the content. Thank you. Yes, I don't know if you're celebrating the introduction or that it's over, but either way. I'm going to give you two stories that show us exactly what not to do. Here's what we must not do as we try to live with each other in community. And both of them are from from the life of David. Now, I, I do this with fear and trembling because the only person in Scripture we love more than Jesus is David. You cannot say anything bad about David. Jesus, we can appreciate the nuance. I mean, he's just God in the flesh. But David, for some reason, is untouchable. So I know I'm stepping into troubled water here when I criticize David, but I want to suggest this morning that 
just entertain it, that maybe David wasn't perfect. And that some of the stories about David in Scripture are warnings to us. They're not examples to imitate. And these are two of them. The first one is from 1 Samuel 16, which we're not going to read. But it's a story of David fleeing during a coup. His son Absalom has claimed the throne. And David is running for his life. And as he's fleeing, there's a man named Shimei who is a Benjamite of the tribe of Saul, who's apparently still a loyalist to the old kingdom, who comes running out as David is fleeing and starts throwing rocks and dirt at David and screaming curses at him, saying, in, in, a, in short, this is what you get for what you did to Saul. You're a liar, you're an adulterer, you're a scoundrel. He's just humiliating David in this worst possible moment. And of course, David's guards want to be turned loose on him. They ask to be able to to quiet the man, which we all know what that's code for. And David's response, I want you to listen to David's response. Let him alone. My own son seeks my life. How much more this Benjamite? Let him alone. Let him curse me. For the Lord has called him. Now listen to that. Let him alone. Let him curse. This is the Lord's work. It may be that the Lord will look on my distress and the Lord will repay me with good for his cursing. Now that sounds so sanctified, so mature, so godly. Here's David fleeing for his life. Having lost his throne, a man is cursing him, throwing rocks at him, and instead of seeking vengeance, David says, that's God's. That's not mine. Maybe God will repay me good for this evil. But that's not the end of the story. The end of the story is, in 1 Kings chapter 2, as David is about to die, the last words he says to his son Solomon are these. Remember that man Shimei? I promised I wouldn't do anything about him. But you didn't make a promise. So make sure he doesn't go down to the grave without blood. And David dies. Now notice what's happened here. What looked like godliness was really just a facade. It looked like he was taking Shimei's curses and responding in a holy way. But he wasn't. And we know he wasn't because of what came out of him in the end. What he did was take it in and let it seed in his heart. And any kind of Christianity that's only concerned about the way you appear to be responding to your enemies will do this to you. It'll make it so that you look like you're turning the other cheek. You look like you're going the extra mile. You look like you're being forgiving. You look like you're being merciful. And then at the end, what comes out of you is all of the harvest of that bitterness that you've been holding secret for years. David was not being godly. He was absorbing those curses and holding them in his heart for the moment when he could do something about it, when he had the power to do something about it. So what I'm saying this morning, make sure you don't mishear me. I don't mean that God wants it to look like you love your enemy or God wants it to appear like you forgive those who wrong you. Appearances don't matter much to God. He's not interested in us putting on a particular face or posturing ourselves so that it appears that we are being good. It has to be real. 
It has to be genuine or it's worse than it not happening at all. It would be better to retaliate in anger in the moment than to put on the pretense of receiving it gracefully only to hold the wound and then let the bitterness grow and grow and grow and grow until it finally explodes. So the key to living with one another is not to just absorb the wrong. We're going to wrong each other. In a community like this, we are going to wrong each other. Like any family, we're going to say the wrong thing at the wrong time. We're going to not say something we should say at the right time. We're going to hurt each other in all kinds of ways. The right response is not to simply absorb it and hold it. Because if you just absorb it and hold it, it will turn to death in you. It will corrupt you from the inside. It will rot your bones, as Scripture says. So what has to happen is we have to do what Jesus did. He takes the wrongs and then he entrusts them to God. That somehow he translates the wrongs done to him into a gift to God. He doesn't hold them. He passes them on. And this is somehow what we have to do. When people wrong us, we have to know how to get it out of us again. We can't hold it. We're not made to contain that kind of injustice and and that kind of wounding. We have to either respond to them and put them back in their place, which is what's natural, or we somehow transfer it into God as a gift. But we have to get it out of ourselves, or we end up just like David did. And then one more story. This is actually from earlier in David's life. David is bringing the ark into Jerusalem, and... He is rejoicing. And if you've been around a Pentecostal or charismatic service, you've heard this sermon. David is dancing before the Lord. And we love that. We absolutely love that. When I was doing my PhD research, and I'm reading all this early Pentecostal material, it's everywhere. As I said, people love David more than they love Jesus. And this story about David dancing before the Lord is like the best story possible. Because here's David just losing his mind in worship. Man, we love that. Like David's got the hill songs in his Walkman and it's just cranked up to the max and he's just letting it fly for Jesus, right? And we love that. But the story is actually a bit more complicated, like if you actually read it. One of the things that happens just before he comes dancing into the city with his Walkman and playing praise and worship music is that a man has died because David has tried to bring the ark into the city and didn't plan well. The ark starts to slide off of the cart. This man named Uzzah, poor guy, just does what anybody would do and tries to steady it, and it kills him. And David is angry. Not that Uzzah is dead. That doesn't seem to bother him that much. But that, his plan didn't work. And he is upset. And he, so he fumes about this for a while. And they just kind of park the ark in this man's house. Obed-Edom is his name. And instantly, Obed-Edom starts to flourish. Like his life just explodes with blessings. And somebody reports it to David and said, hey, since we left the ark in Obed-Edom's house, like he's had nine children and he won the lottery twice. And David's like, that's not right. Get the ark to me. That belongs to me. That's my blessing. And so David and all the city come out and they bring the ark into, and over and over and over and over and over again in the story, the narrator says, they bring the ark into the city of David the city of David, into the city of David. King David leading the way. And you start to realize the narrator's trying not so subtly to tell you this is about David and his kingdom. It's not about God. David is not dancing because he loves Jesus. He's not darling check a couple of millennia before. 
He's dancing because his kingdom is being established. His name in his city is established now. And he has centralized the kingdom and the priesthood. He's wearing a linen ephod while he's dancing. He is priest. He is king. It's about David, not about God. And out the window, Michael, his wife, sees him. And again, just as much as we love David, we hate this woman. She is the hen-pecking woman of every possible stereotype. Here she is looking out the window at David and his praise and worship happiness, and she will have none of it. She's like those Presbyterians and those Baptists. She doesn't know anything about the Holy Spirit, and she's judging him. (laughs) And sure enough, the story goes, David, as you know, shows up at his house, and she's there to berate him. And almost universally, when we tell this story, and I've done some research finding sermons about the story, Everything I've found suggests we see this as a moment in which God is pleased with David and infuriated with Michael. She is a critical spirit. She's dead and cold. She doesn't know how to worship God. David, he knows how, he knows how to get his crazy praise on, and that's what God wants. But if you read the story and you listen to what David says to her, you get an entirely different picture. Listen to his words. He comes to the house She steps out to meet him and says, How the king of Israel honored himself today, uncovering himself before the eyes of his servants' maids, as any vulgar fellow might shamelessly uncover himself. This is what we call sarcasm. Notice David's response. It was before the Lord who chose me in place of your father and all his household to appoint me as prince over Israel, the people of the Lord, that I have danced before the Lord. I will make myself yet more contemptible than this, and I will be abased in my own eyes, but by the maids of whom you speak, by them I shall be held in honor. You notice anything about this? It's not about God at all. It's about David. Woman... I think that may be one reason we like this passage. We, we like passages where men put women in their place. And like Job, and now here with David. Woman, God chose me over your daddy. Keep your mouth shut. That's what he's saying. He chose me, not your daddy. And I'll do what I want. I'm King David. This is my city. God is on my side, not yours. And if I want to humiliate myself, I will humiliate myself. But just, just want you to know, it won't humiliate me. Because all those women that were looking at me today, they will desire me even more next time. Does this sound like Jesus? This is not about God. This is about David rejoicing that his power is established. But why Michael? Why, why does this come out of her? Why does she judge David like this? Her story is complicated too. She's David's wife because Saul, her dad, who was king, gave her to David as a kind of political play, a way of controlling David when David's reputation was starting to swell. And early on in their marriage, Saul comes to kill David in the night, and she lets David out a window and lies to her dad to save David's life. And now here we are all these years later. Michael, and the narrator keeps telling us this, Michael, daughter of Saul, is now looking out a window again at a man she made possible 
She knows that if she isn't married to David, he doesn't have a right to the throne. If she doesn't save his life by lying to her dad and helping David's secret away, David is dead. He's not king. He's king today because she allowed herself to be used as a political force and because she saved his life. And now she's looking out that window, and instead of seeing a man who loves her as she loves him, she sees a man who's headed to destruction just like her dad was. And she's not wrong. What she sees about David is anticipating what's going to happen to David, that his son Absalom is going to turn all of those maids against David. She senses the pride in David's heart. She doesn't deal with it rightly by any means. She's not wrong about what's going on with David. And this is what strikes me, that if we don't deal with the brokenness that we absorb in times of conflict, I mean, imagine what it's like to be Michael. You remember the story of Jonathan, Saul's son, David's best friend? He's caught between Saul and David. He has the mercy of dying young. Michael has to live it to the end. She has to live that conflict even after her father is dead and now live to see her husband whom she loved and chose over her father turn himself against God and against what's best for him. And so I can understand why she's angry. But she does what we must not do. She looks out that window that she had once used to deliver him to life and she despises what she sees. Because here's the lesson I think that the text wants us to hear. That if you give ministry, if you help people escape out a window, but you don't really deal with the conflict that happens in you in that process, someday that will be the very perspective you take in despising them. Everything you do to be generous and kind to someone, if you don't turn that out back to God as gift, someday you will resent the way they respond to what you did to them. Or how they do not respond to what you did for them. And here in this moment, she does with David exactly what Uzzah did with the ark. You remember what Uzzah did, right? The ark is about to fall, and he puts his hand out to stop it. This is what Michael's doing, I think. David, she sees him. He's about to fall. He's he's proud. He's arrogant. He's losing his touch, and she puts her hand out to stop him. But when she does, all she does is bring death. Now hear me, God does not judge her for this. The text says only that Michael had no child to the day of her death. It does not say God made her barren. What happened here is not a divine judgment. It's a rupture of a relationship. What happened is she and David are so estranged, they can't separate because of the political importance of their marriage. But their relationship is over. And that brings death. And this is what happens every time we try to put our hands on one another to keep one another from falling. Now, I know this is going to come as a shock, but when you, the next time you feel the Holy Spirit moving you to send that hot Facebook message to someone to keep them from sinning, don't do it because you're just going to bring death. Because our call is not to put our hands on one another to keep one another from falling. James and Paul both say, you must not judge someone else's servants. They rise or fall on someone else's word, not yours. And the truth of the matter is, as we live together, the most important thing we do is not put our hands on each other, even if we're right. 
Even if I see a sin in your life or you see a sin in my life, go to God with it. Don't go on Facebook with it. Don't go to my neighbor with it. And for God's sake, don't come to me with a thus saith the Lord about your sin because what you'll do is bring death instead of life. Now, this is not me covering up some sin in my life. This is, I feel, a word for our church in this moment. We are all going to see, have seen, will see, and in the future will continue to see things that are wrong. And every instinct in us is going to want to reach out and steady it. With the best intentions, we're going to say something, do something, post a message, send a letter, have caught. We're going to reach out and try to touch it. But that's not what we're called to be. We're called to people who can take the abuse and then translate it into God's life. Turn it over to him. Because we're people who learn at this table the only judgment that matters. And the fact of the matter is, when we come to this table today in just a few moments, we're there because Jesus invited us. We don't curate the guest list. There are people, I don't want at that table. But he invited them, what am I going to do? And there are a lot of people who don't want me at that table. But nah, 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 he invited me, what are you going to do? Right? It's not about what we want. He's the host. And the only judgment that matters is his call to follow him. You hear me? The only judgment that matters is that he calls people to follow him. And I better not do anything that interrupts their following. Especially when I'm right. Especially when I see something that's wrong. That's the moment when I have to be the most careful. There's a line in the Didache, in the early church teaching, that says, let your alms sweat in your hands before you give them. I love this image. And I, I want to leave us with this today. There are things you're going to see about one another. And you're going to have every instinct to speak it. But at least let it sweat first. At least sit with it for a year or two or three and then see if it still needs to be said. God makes all things beautiful in his time. I don't have to rush it. I don't have to put my hand out on you to make sure that I fix it today. All I have to do is trust myself to the one who judges justly and trust that when he's done doing what he's going to do, he'll make all things right. Let me pray for you and I'll get out of the way. Lord, help us to hear this word today as your word. And hear nothing but your word. In this season, for us as a community, it's critical that we not become judgmental. That we not, like Michael, put our hands out on those who are wrong to try to steady them. We need to live with openness to you. And what happens, we translate into a gift to you. Give us the grace to do that. Amen.